Okay, let's bring our prayer to a close. So, Lord, we thank you for hearing our prayer this evening. Thank you for speaking to us in our midst tonight. We thank you, Lord, that through our openness to you and to one another, you are working in our situations. So, Lord, we want to hold these concerns before you, our petitions, our intercessions before you, thanking you that you are at work in each of these circumstances because of your love for the people that we have concern for, for you love us, and you want to show forth your glory. We ask you to do that as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. All right. So tonight uh, on your tables, you'll have uh, two sets of papers. Um, the larger set is for your own reference. It's, uh, it's an article by Ralph Martin on the charisms of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit. Um, and the other we'll be using a little bit later on. They're like uh, real-life case studies. We'll be taking a look at how to use the gifts of the Spirit in different circumstances. So we'll be using that a little bit later on. On your notes, let's turn to page 14. Tonight we're going to be looking all at the spiritual gifts. What are the spiritual gifts? We're going to actually go into defining most of them. So page 14, we'll start there. We'll be looking at tonight um, the, the language we use to describe spiritual gifts. We'll be looking at circumstances by which they're used, how they come about, and what are they, and what, and exactly what um, particularly are the different roles the gifts have. Okay, so let's begin with page 14. The gifts, or we call them charisms or charismata in the Greek. You also hear another word that we'll use tonight, too, called gracelets. It's a it's another word for, uh, been coined, just kind of a, a word that was coined by a theologian actually many years ago to describe gifts. But the gifts of the Spirit are transrational manifestations of God. We'll talk about that word in just a moment. So, so they're given by God for the purpose of ministry, ministry taking place for the good of the body of Christ. So the gifts of the Spirit are for the purpose of ministry and to build up the body of Christ. Their source is the Holy Spirit. He's the distributor of the gifts. The recipients are the church or the body of Christ. The essence of the, uh, the gifts are their manifestations of grace. And grace is the Lord's favor, uh, his, um, his like blessing, his action among us. And the purpose is to edify, uh, to glorify God, to equip the ministry, uh, uh, equip the Christian for ministry. So in other words, we want to build up others through the gifts Glorify God with them, and we want to equip others to be able to serve. And the motive is love. Okay. So the, um, we'll talk about love a little bit later on, but love is not a gift or a charism of the Spirit. It's the way by which all the gifts are exercised. It's the motivation by which they're done. It's, the, it's kind of like the water in which all the gifts kind of float in, you might say. Okay. So let's take a look at an example. Since the beginning of creation, the Holy Spirit desired to find those through whom he could manifest his love and presence. So in other words, at the beginning of creation, he hovered over the waters and he created, he took, he made order out of chaos in Genesis chapter 1. And the book of Numbers, to give you a little bit of background on this, Moses was uh, with the 70 elders of Israel and the Holy Spirit came upon the 70 elders to prophesy, but there were two elders that were late for the meeting. So they were late coming to the meeting. So, uh, so instead of getting fined by Moses, the Holy Spirit fell upon them. And they were outside. And Joshua kind of said, Lord, what's up with that? They weren't even part of us, you know. They, didn't, they made it to the meeting late, and yet they got the Holy Spirit like we did. And this is what Moses said. Um, 
Elad and Medad were prophesying in the camp of Israel. When Moses found this out, he said, would all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord put his spirit upon them. Moses' desire was that every single one of God's people have a personal experience of the presence of God so they could hear his word in their hearts and share that with others. Joel, in chapter 2, prophesied there was a day coming when the prayer of Moses would be answered. And then in the book of Acts, at Pentecost, Peter says the day that Joel prophesied has come, and we live in that day, you and I do, and God is ministering upon those who desire the gifts. So when we talk about the gifts of the Spirit, the fact in the Old Testament they were for just certain people, but now for the New Testament, they're for any Christian who's baptized and has the Holy Spirit living in them. Okay, we'll carry that through a little bit more just a little bit later on. And we'll also look at some of the church's teaching on that. Uh, let's take a look at page 15, the language of gifts. This is the language that we're using here at St. Patrick's. Um, and this will be a way that we'll going forward, we'll be able just to describe how the gifts operate. So first of all, there's what we call the role. The role of the Christian. This is the doing of acts which you see in Scripture by means of your natural ability to the degree that you're able to. We call that rational, meaning natural ability, natural things that we do. So, so for example, things like the spiritual and corporal works of mercy, feeding the poor, instructing people in the the word of God, um, visiting the sick, um, burying the dead, comforting the grieving, uh, you know, interceding for people. All the spiritual corporal works of mercy, uh, sharing our faith with others. These are all we call roles that every Christian is, is to be doing. Every Christian is supposed to be visiting the sick and praying with them. Or if we have a healing service, they come to us and we pray with them. Every Christian is supposed to be do that. It's not for certain people. It's not just for healers or worker of miracles. As we'll see later on tonight, we don't usually use those terms here. But anyone who has the Holy Spirit living in is supposed to walk in these spiritual and corporal works of mercy. And we call that role and we call that rational, meaning that it's things that are natural to every Christian to do. Then there's what we call gifts or anointings. Anointing is a, means the presence of the Lord kind of shows up in a way that's really perceptible. It's, okay? And gifts are gifts of the Spirit. These are occasional manifestations of a gift or gifts as willed by the Lord. We call that transrational. So in other words, as you're doing the role of feeding the poor, rational, okay, natural, natural thing that Christian does, the Lord may, on occasion, give a particular spiritual gift to help you minister to the poor. We call that trans, cutting across the rational, cutting across the natural, taking the natural to another level. Notice, though, the gifts won't show up unless you're doing the role, okay? So you got to be doing the role. Okay. So the baseball player can't hit the home run unless he goes up to bat and swings okay, the bat. He's doing his role as a baseball player, swinging the bat. And then it just may happen on occasion, he's going to knock the ball out of the park. Okay. Third is when there's an increase of the occasions of certain gifts, we call that ministries. So in other words, uh, we'll take an example of that just a minute. So in other words, when a certain gift keeps appearing in your life with good effect, when you're doing the role, we call that, then we say that gift is starting to emerge into a ministry. So for example, um, someone 
uh, visits the sick of the hospital. It's their, they, you know, that's their role as a Christian. It's not that they, you know, um, particularly have any particular real great gifts with that. You're just doing their role as a Christian, visiting the sick and praying with them, pray as they go. And when they pray with that person, uh, they pray for them to get well, to recover, to strengthen. And they find out that, gee, their batting percentage is really good. People are getting well. So we say that, I say they go this coming Friday and visit the sick and they pray with the sick and, uh, and the, you know, and they're just doing their role. And they keep going back every Friday and praying with the sick. And it's uh, over a period of time, the Lord starts healing people through them. They start getting better quicker. And, uh, and that continues on for like the next six, eight months as they do their role of visiting the sick and praying with them. And we say that, that those gifts are starting to emerge into a ministry of healing. Okay? And then office. The word office means an appointment made by the Lord, confirmed by the church, uh, church's leadership, that a person has a further function in the church for a wider scope throughout a diocese or nation. Take my person visiting the hospital, okay? Now they're no longer just visiting the hospital, praying with the sick and seeing the sick recover a lot there. I mean, they're not perfect batting percentage, but they have a good batting percentage there, okay? And then we say, okay, uh, say, uh, her name is Carol. We say, Carol, uh, we put you on a prayer team and start ministering and praying with people, you know, there. And they start to get really well, you know? I mean, she, her, she does really see a lot of people through her get well, um, and so then Carol, we say Carol's gifts of he- starting to receive the gifts of healing, which emerge into a ministry. Um, and let's say it's recognized throughout the entire diocese of Baltimore by the archbishop. Then we say it's an office because okay, it has a wider scope than just St. Patrick's or locally. It has to go throughout the whole of diocese. Recognized by the leadership, though. Okay. Let's take a look at an illustration from Scripture, the prophet Joel. Joel began his role was very simple. He lived a period of a divided kingdom in the Old Testament, most likely lived in Jerusalem. He saw the devastation on Israel's agricultural life by a large army of grasshoppers invaded the land. That's the natural. That's the rational. So he was just looking at nature as it's taking course, and he sees all these grasshoppers come through and destroy the agriculture. And he's watching this, right? And he's observing this. And what happens is the Lord begins to take what's the natural and impress upon him the gift of prophecy, which means it's the Lord's heart for his people, what he sees going on beyond the natural, but with the condition of his people. Let's take a look at that. The prophecy of Joel was an anointing from the Lord that came upon Joel. He spoke this word to Judah. He saw that through the anointing, the calamity, the way God went to him to see it. In other words, he saw the calamity not just naturally anymore, now he saw the spiritual calamity of his people. And the invasions of the grasshoppers was a judgment of God upon the people because of their sinfulness and refuse, the refusal to repent. Joel proceeds to call Judah to repentance, reports the victorious outcome, and speaks of the coming of the Spirit. So in other words, he calls Israel to, or Judah rather, to repentance and says that his repentance is a small piece of something larger the Lord's going to do a, a greater outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So Joel has this gift of prophecy, sharing the heart of God for his people, but began with the natural. And then that gift was so uh, so uh, consistent in Israel through Joel, it becomes a, becomes a ministry. And then eventually he's recognized through the office of a prophet of Israel. And how we know that? Because Peter called him 
a prophet. Uh, so we know that he, he had a larger scope. In other words, it went out of Jerusalem to the whole of Israel. So it had a larger locality than just Jerusalem. So Joel's message to Israel about repentance and the judgment and the further outpouring of the Holy Spirit was something that eventually went beyond Jerusalem, went beyond Judah, went went into the entire nation of Israel. And so we recognize him as an office. Okay, so what happened here? The rational and transrational. There's an awareness that both the Lord and the person are involved in giving and receiving gifts. The rational means the sense the person must be aware of what is surrounding him or her. In other words, you do the role the Lord has asked you to do. Visit the sick, share your faith, uh, give uh, generously of your resources, um, feed the poor, clothe the naked, you know, take care of the lonely, and so on. You do the role that, as Christians, we do. And then transrational is the sense that God, at his own discretion, anoints or gives the gifts for that person for an effect he wishes to produce. Okay. So take a faith formation teacher. Okay. Okay. And the faith formation teacher is teaching a confirmation class. Okay. And this person is well prepared and, and they faithfully are doing their role as a Christian by sharing their faith through faith formation teaching. They're not like a, a, a you would say, a particular um, you know, skilled teacher. They're just, do, they're just doing their role, sharing their faith as a Christian. So that's their role. But uh, as they do their role on certain Sundays, not every Sunday, the Lord impresses upon their heart uh, an understanding of like, the Holy Spirit that really inspires the class to be more open to the Holy Spirit. We call that an utterance of word of knowledge meaning that it's knowledge that just moves people's hearts to become further open. It doesn't happen every Sunday, but they teach confirmation class, but it happens on certain Sundays. Okay, the person prays for those gifts, and, lo- and, and a couple of Sundays they show up. But let's say this person does that, and those gifts start showing up more frequently in that class. So by the end of the year, you say, boy, that, that confirmation class was really moved to really open themselves up to the Lord in a way that we've never seen before here. You would say that person now has a teaching gift. It's no longer just simply moving the hearts of people to come open to the Lord. They're moving more into a teaching gift. In other words, the Lord is using the gift of teaching to open those hearts of those children up more and more to the Holy Spirit. And so that gift moves from occasional use to increased use to now, it looks like a ministry is being formed there. Okay, see the, but if you don't start with the role, you'll never get to the ministry. As we do the role and are faithfully doing that, the Lord gives his gifts. In other words, the Lord isn't going to give his gifts as we sit at home, okay, on the couch. <laughs> That's not where he gives the gifts. All right, page 16. The anointings and the gifts. The gifts are not our possessions. You hear people say, I have the gift of this. I have the gift of teaching. I have the gift of healing. I have the gift of working in miracles. I have the gift of whatever. We said, no, the gifts are not our possessions. They belong to the Holy Spirit. So they are not dispensed to us and become our property. So I don't have the gift of um, you know, prophecy in my back pocket. I can pull it out anytime I want. Or I don't have the gift of healing in my back pocket. I can pull it out. The gifts are belong to the Holy Spirit, and they're given 
through me, in this case, to somebody in need. So if a person is sick, I don't say I have the gifts of healing. I say that the Lord is using me as I'm faithful in my role of praying for the sick, visiting the sick, and so on. He uses, he at certain times manifests or gives the gifts of healing for the sake of that person who's ill. I'm not ill. I don't need the gifts of healing. That person who's ill needs the gifts of healing. But he may use me in, in an increasing way as I'm faithful in my role. So that it's possible that as the gift is used increasingly and there's good effect with that, then, um, then that person may be saying they're moving into a ministry or ministry is beginning to emerge now. Okay, the source then of the gifts are the Holy Spirit. He's the source. The service then is Jesus is the one ultimately served by the use of the gift. And he directs the service. The effect, this is the result. When we say effect, we mean the result of the gift. In other words, what's, what's the result on the person or people involved? Go back to my teaching example in the faith formation with the confirmation person. We ask the question, what's the effect on that, that confirmation class? Their hearts become more and more open to the Holy Spirit and desire more of the Holy Spirit in their life. So that, so in other words, there's a teaching gift being given there, and then that may emerge further into a ministry. But how do we know? We look for the effects in the people's lives. Somebody said to me, I, I think I have the gifts of healing. I said, well, well uh, do you pray with people? And they said, well, occasionally. I said, what's the results? Well, sometimes they get well and sometimes they don't, you know. So, well, we wouldn't say they had the gifts of healing. We may say there would be occasions where the gift may appear, but... If people aren't getting well consistently, the gifts of healing probably aren't present. It's only when we see gifts of healing present on an ongoing basis through that person's prayer for others that we say that they may have the gifts of healing that emerge into a ministry. And manifestation means something that God is giving and keeps on giving for all to witness. Manifestation simply means that God is revealing himself at that moment. So go back to my confirmation class. He was revealing himself to his confirmation kids by opening their hearts more up to the knowledge of the Holy Spirit so they will desire more of the Holy Spirit in their life. That was a manifestation which impressed their hearts, impressed their minds in a way that made them more open. Okay, so just to summarize that part of it. Gifts then come as we do our role as a Christian. And then as we do our role as a Christian, the Lord will give the gifts because they're tools to help us minister to others. But the gifts don't belong to me. So, for example, take your, um, uh, the person who delivers your mail. Okay, male or female. The mail doesn't belong to them. It belongs to you. But they are delivery of the mail. So they've got to do their job, right? They've got to fulfill their role and do their job and bring you the mail. But the mail's not theirs. It belongs to you. So you, you and I need to do our role of sharing our faith, praying with the sick, taking care of the poor, ministering to people who are broken of heart, and so on. And as we do that role, the Lord will give tools, we call gifts of the Spirit, to help us in ministering to the situations that we face. Okay? All right. Let's, we're going to come back later to the baptism of the Spirit. Let's take a look at page 18 and talk about gifts in the history of the Christian church.
already. Have gifts ceased to operate today? In the larger church today, uh, and in the history of the Christian church, there's been the theory and practice that the gifts such as healings and miracles do not occur today. And here's some of the reasons why they say that. Signs and wonders, gifts have ceased with the ending of the apostolic age. Apostolic age means the time of the apostles, the 12 apostles. Once they died off, the gifts such as healing and miracles stop operating. Number two is some say that signs and wonders, gifts have ceased because they belong to the earliest centuries of the church. So they're willing to say like the first couple centuries of the church, first couple hundred years, they're no longer needed as credentials since the church was widely established and officially sanctioned. Uh, in the Catholic Church, that was an understanding uh, not held, held tightly by the church, but held by many at different points in the Catholic Church's history. But we'll see in a moment, it was, it's not officially embraced at all by the Catholic Church. Number three is signs and wonders and gifts faded as the church decreased in spiritual vitality. In other words, as the church went through seasons of becoming less spiritual, vital, and alive, the gifts disappeared. And fourthly, signs and wonders and gifts have never ceased among Christians, but have occurred from the apostolic age until now. In the Catholic Church, we see a lot of that. For example, you need at least two miracles to make a saint, right? To canonize a saint. So there was some sign the Catholic Church always held onto the fact that we needed some miracles to make saints with, basically. And then we have in the lives of saints testimonies when they were living of numerous kinds of healings, miracles, raising the dead, and so on. There's a book put out by a Catholic publisher of like 400 stories of saints who raised the dead in our history. So there had to be some kind of signs and wonders operative in the, in the Catholic Church. But there was at the same time this thinking that said that they disappeared. Uh, they're not needed any longer because the church was officially established. So the theory states that once the Christian church has established the signs and wonders such as miracles and healings and tongue is not needed. They serve to confirm the validity of the church. They were part of the apostles' credentials. They authenticated the apostles. The possession of the supernatural gifts was confined to the apostolic age. The theory, however, rejects the witness of the church fathers. The church fathers lived a lot in the first eight centuries of the Catholic Church. They are seen as like the foundation of the Catholic Church because of their their teaching, their sanctity. A lot of them were martyrs, you know, um, and so on. Fathers George Montague and Killian MacDonald. Father Montague was a Marianist priest and scripture scholar, and Killian MacDonald was a Benedictine priest and a historical stu- study of the church. In a book they wrote, Christian Initiation in the First Eight Centuries, it came out in 1994, I believe, discovered that the early church prepared those to be baptized on the Easter Vigil to pray for, expect, and receive the charisms or gifts after they were baptized. After baptism, they went into the main body of the church, which gathered and prayed for for an outpouring of the gifts. So think of this for a moment. In the early church, they would prepare people for baptism, and they would take the men... And they would bring them down into a pool of water, and they'd be totally immersed. As they came out, the bishop would be there to confirm them. And then they'd have another room in which they took the women, brought them into the pool of water. As they came out, uh, they would receive the bishop's anointing. That would be confirmation. And then the men and women went into the main body of the church. And there, the rest of the Christian body, which had been praying with them and singing songs of praise and praying for them, would pray over them for the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And that, that occurred in the first eight centuries of the church as a normal practice, what we would call today the RCIA. Okay. So, 
So that's what Father Montague and McDonald um, kind of found in their studies. The saints' gifts, uh, the, the gifts have always been found among the saints. Usually two miracles were needed to canonize a person. In the ordinary life and ministry of many saints, the gifts were in evidence. For example, St. Catherine of Siena, 14th century, was a beautiful reflection of contemplative gifts of prayer combined with charismatic gifts of healing, words of knowledge, prophetic gifts, and discernment. In fact, Catherine was so much known for not only her sanctity, but also known for the manifestation of the gifts of the Spirit through her life that bands of people would travel with her wherever she went. Priests and other nuns and lay people would all travel with her. She had her own ministry band, you might say, wherever she went. In fact, she, uh, the Lord used her uh, with the gift of discernment and what we call the word of knowledge uh, about who the true pope was. Because in her day, they had two popes. You know, So she had to she felt the Lord lead her to say, this was the true guy, and better get back to Rome. He was in France at the time. So, so it was a charismatic gift of the Spirit that helped her discern who the true Pope was. For example, um, even when the church was struggling with reform, the gifts were evidence in the, in the saints and the movements of the renewal that sprung up in response to the need for reform. For example, the Franciscans and Dominicans in the 13th century of the church were charismatic renewal movements of their day. Both Dominic and Francis and many of their followers uh, were, uh, as they cared for the poor, as they preached the gospel, as they built their communities and movements, the Lord used them with spiritual gifts, healing, signs and wonders, miracles, and so on, were all evident through their lives. So God has never ceased to work signs and wonders in his church. At times, the gifts were more obvious than other times. St. John the Twenty-Third prayed at the beginning of the Second Vatican Council for a new Pentecost. He prayed, this is part of the prayer he prayed, renew your wonders in our day as by a new Pentecost. Second Vatican Council, and its document on the constitution of the church, which was one of the major documents of the church, after a long struggle, uh, affirmed the presence of the charismatic gifts in the church for today. There was a big debate at the council about whether the charismatic gifts were really present, should be in the church today. Cardinal Ruffini said, no, we don't need the gifts today. We have the establishment of the church. They were there at one time, but we don't need them anymore. Cardinal Sunins from Belgium got up and said, no, the gifts have always been present in the church. And he began to list all the ways. And this went on for a big debate for almost a full day at the council. Well, Cardinal Soons won the day because it entered into the documents of the Second Vatican Council that the gifts of the Spirit, the charismatic Spirit, were present and available for the church in any season of the church's life because they were needed to build up the church. This also appeared in the document on the Apostolate for the Laity. St. John Paul II, on the vigil of Pentecost, 1998, with over 500,000 people from renewal movements in the church gathered in St. Peter's Square. He stated that the church is rediscovering the charismatic dimension in our day. He stated that the church consists of the charismatic and institutional dimensions. Both are constitutive, meaning foundational, of the church's foundation. Since uh, Blessed Paul VI in 1975 affirmed the presence and validity of the charismatic renewal movement in the Catholic Church. He and subsequent popes since then have recognized the presence of charismatic gifts in the life of the church. When John Paul II gathered all those people in St. Peter's Square in 1998, he said that we're rediscovering today 
that the church is not just hierarchical. It's not just canon law or sacraments. It's not just bishops and priests and deacons. It's also, it's also charismatic dimension. It's also how the Holy Spirit moves spontaneously and gives his gifts to be able to build up the church. He said we need both to operate and make the church what the church is supposed to be about. It's both institutional. It's also charismatic. Both are necessary for the church to be the church. If you only have one without the other, you do not have the church. You don't have the body of Christ. So just think of it now. Every Catholic parish has the hierarchical end, canon law, sacraments, you know, hierarchy of terms of uh, priests uh, and deacons, for example. But then every Catholic parish is to have the charismatic gifts operating as well. The gifts that we'll look at later on tonight, um, for example. And so the church needs both. Benedict XVI said that basically the church operates, he says, by by the spontaneous movement of the Holy Spirit. He says, for example, you would think a man being called to the priesthood is a hierarchical gift. And it is. It's hierarchical once he's ordained. But he said, Benedict said, well, how did he, become, how did he get there? He had to listen in his heart to the interior movement of the Holy Spirit. He says, no hierarchy was going to dictate that. No canon law could, could, could you know, make that happen. It had to be a response to the Holy Spirit in his heart. He says that was a charismatic movement of the Holy Spirit in that person's heart. And that man responded to the Lord by entering into a process of having it discerned that he'd become a priest. So Benedict is saying the church moves by the movement of the Holy Spirit, by the spontaneous movement of the Holy Spirit. Okay, page 19, the church and spiritual gifts. St. John Paul II stated that one of the most significant rediscoveries in the Catholic Church was the charismatic dimension of the church's life. This is what he said. The church's self-awareness is based on the certainty that Jesus Christ is alive, is working in the present, and changes life. With the Second Vatican Council, the Comforter recently gave the church a renewed Pentecost, instilling a new and unforeseen dynamism. This, I love this statement that he says, whenever the Holy Spirit intervenes, he leaves people astonished. He brings about events of amazing newness. He radically changes persons and history. So the question is they ask, are, are Catholic parishes being astonished by the Holy Spirit? <laughs> the Pope is saying, the saint is saying that, hey, we should be astonished. That's what the Holy Spirit wants to do. He wants to astonish us. He wants to bring about an amazing newness. And our midst, Catholic parishes ought to be a buzz about what the Lord is doing. Okay, the church then uh, churches make up of uh, consist of two key foundations: the institutional and charismatic. The charismatic dimension, spiritual gifts, necessary to the foundation of the church. This is what Lumagentian says. Lumagentian was a main document in the Catholic Church and Second Vatican Council. It's the constitutional in the church. The church has rediscovered the charismatic dimension as one of her constitutive elements. It's not only through the sacraments and the ministrations of the church that the Holy Spirit makes holy the people, leads them, and enriches them with his virtues. Allotting his gifts according as he wills, he also distributes special graces among the faithful of every rank. He makes them fit and ready to undertake the various tasks and offices for the renewal and building up of the church. So in other words, the church has its sacraments, has its ministries, has its hierarchy, has its 
law, of course, which is all necessary for the order of the church. But the council is saying, this is where Cardinal Sudens prevailed in that debate. He says the council is saying that the Holy Spirit gives gifts to people of every rank. Every rank. So in other words, no pope, bishop, priest, pastor, whatever can legislate what gifts the Holy Spirit wants to give. He can't do it. Impossible to do. Rather, his job is, by both the council and the catechism states, his job is to discern the gifts of what the Holy Spirit is given in a particular body of people, like a parish, for example. Letter C. The institutional and charismatic aspects are co-essential, as it were, to the church's constitution. This is John Paul II. They contribute, although differently, to the life, renewal, and sanctification of God's people. It is from this providential rediscovery of the church's charismatic dimension that before and after the council, a remarkable pattern of growth has been established for ecclesial movements and new communities. You present here, he's talking about the gathering in 1998, are the tangible proof of this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the popes, um, and John Paul II kind of brought it to a head, but uh, they recognize that in the church, particularly post-Vatican Council II, that the Holy Spirit was causing many new movements to rise up in the church. Uh, and they said this is a work of the Holy Spirit that no church hierarchy legislated at all. It was from the bottom up that it occurred. They also recognized, particularly John Paul II, kind of, uh, recognized this and said that that new communities have sprung up as well, communities of people coming together, uh, living the Christian life as brothers and sisters in Christ. This was all spontaneous, meaning that it was a work of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't like, you know, some bishop said, okay, I think we need a community in this, in this diocese. And, whoops, he, did, you know, he, does, he writes a, a particular mandate, and up comes a community. never happened because it's a spontaneous work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of people. And what John Paul II and other popes have done in recent time is they recognize and discerned how the Holy Spirit was work, is working in the church, something they didn't plan or purpose, but something the Holy Spirit did on his own initiative, and they recognize it and discern it and say, hey, this is of God. They don't, they're not saying that it's perfect. In fact, they had a lot of counsel and wisdom to bring it into maturity. You know, It's always in need of maturity because we're dealing with human beings, right? But they say it's still an authentic work of the Lord. Letter D. The charisms are, or spiritual gifts, are a special gift or favor given by the Holy Spirit to Christians to empower them to engage in a supernatural kind of service or work to build up the life of the church, enable her to carry her mission in the world. Take my confirmation teacher example. Doing their role as a, as a teacher, sharing their faith, right? The Lord gives a gift or special favor to help that person in their role of helping confirmation kids become more open to the Holy Spirit and desire him more. Grace, then, is first and foremost the gift of the Spirit who justifies and sanctifies us. This is from the Catechism of the Church, by the way. But the grace also includes gifts that the Spirit grants us to associate us with his work, to enable us to collaborate in the salvation of others and the growth of the body of Christ. There are sacramental graces, baptism, Eucharist, and so on, gifts proper to the different sacraments. There are furthermore special graces, also called charisms, for the Greek term used by St. Paul, and meaning favor, gratuitous gift, benefit, 
whatever their character, meaning that the gifts are extraordinary sometimes, such as the gift of miracles or tongues, gifts are orientated towards sanctifying grace and intended for the common good of the church. They are at the service of charity, which builds up the church. In other words, what the catechism is saying is that sometimes the gifts are extraordinary, sometimes they're ordinary. doesn't matter, he says, they say. However they are, they're used to build up the church and bring God's people into holiness, sanctifying grace. So in other words, some gifts are just like ordinary kind. They're notice, like, like my example, for example, with the confirmation person. Or they're more extraordinary, like the person who keeps going to the hospital and keeps praying with people and they keep getting well. You know, you say that's more extraordinary. He says both are needed. Both are for the common good. And both are serve in the service of charity. And both help people grow in holiness as well. Okay, let's turn over. Witness of tradition. The Catechism states here, whether extraordinary or simple and humble, charisms are graces of the Holy Spirit, which directly or indirectly benefit the church, ordered as they are to her building up to the common, to the good of men and to the needs of the world. Again, from the Catechism, charisms are to be accepted with gratitude by the person who receives them and by all members of the church as well. So, you know, the charisms are to be prayed for, um, studied, grow in, asked for. They're to be accepted by all. Now, it's the role of the pastors of the church to discern and make sure they're operated well and in order, but we're to accept the gifts with openness and with gratitude that the Lord is giving them. Catechism goes on to say, they are wonderfully rich grace for the apostolic vitality, which means the ministry of the church, and holiness of the entire body of Christ, provided they really are genuine gifts of the Holy Spirit and are used in full conformity with authentic promptings of this same spirit, and in keeping with charity, the true measure of all charisms. Remember I said charity was like the ocean by which the gifts kind of lived in. So it's so charity is the way by which the gifts operate. So in other words, when that person going to the hospital and praying over the sick, they are to do that in an act of service to charity, an act of love. And that's how the gifts become truly grow and operate and are effective. Just one example from Christian tradition here. Tertullian, a Christian leader in the first couple centuries, in his document called uh, On Baptism, said this, written in the early third century, addresses the newly baptized who are about to enter the area where all will celebrate the Eucharist. He says this, Therefore, you blessed ones, for whom the grace of God is waiting, when you come up from the most sacred bath of the new birth, when you spread out your hands for the first time in your mother's house, that's the church, with your brethren, ask your father, ask your Lord for the spiritual gift of his inheritance, the distribution of charisms, which form an additional underlying feature of baptism. Ask, he says, and you shall receive. In fact, you have sought and it has been added to you. So Tertullian is saying, and this is what's so consistent with the early church fathers, is that the charisms are the inheritance of the baptized. In other words, they, they're, your, they're your inheritance. If you're baptized, they belong to you. In other words, meaning that the Holy Spirit wants to distribute charisms to you. He's given you the gift of the Holy Spirit through baptism, so he's also given you his gifts as well. 
So they are our inheritance as sons and daughters of the Father. We have a Father who wants to pour out gifts upon his children. Because he loves us. Like any good parent, he wants to give gifts to his children. So here he's giving gifts so they can be used to help us grow in holiness, to help others grow in holiness, to minister to the needs of people. Okay. So let's look at the reflection questions. Were you aware that God continued giving spiritual gifts since the New Testament times? Kind of measure yourself. With that. What kind of understanding have you had of gifts in the Catholic Church? And secondly, were you aware of the Catholic Church's official position on charismatic gifts? Let's take about uh, five to seven minutes in your small groups and just chat on that. Talk about that for just a minute.